This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. It's the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a radio show committed to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, questions about this crazy world that we're living in. Whatever's on your heart and mind, you call and I'll do the best I can. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, hands-free feature in your phone. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. I hope most of you got a chance to um, listen to Raina's Sweet Summer Devotion last night. You know, Raina is um, so dear to my heart. Uh, She's um, one of those people, I think, now this is unofficial, but I think Raina is the single person that I have spent uh, more time praying for than perhaps anybody else uh, in our church's history uh, because she's gone through so much. And it's such a wonderful, wonderful testimony of the faithfulness of God. Um, she doesn't gloss over the difficult times that she had, the scary things. Um, but I think it's really, really a valuable thing to listen to. If you haven't listened, you can go to calvaryessay.com uh, go down to recent studies, and you'll see Sweet Summer Devotions, and uh, and it will be there. So, Rain, I'm sure you're not listening, but God bless you. We love you, and thank you so much for sharing your heart. Now, when Reuben called yesterday, and we've gotten some emails and some phone calls about Reuben's call, people praying for you, Reuben. Um, I, 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 as strongly as I could, encourage you to, to watch Raina's thing last night. I pray that you did. And I trust that the Lord will minister to your heart. Okay, let's get to some questions that we have here for the program. Uh, the first one is, actually the first one I want to finish when I, I was doing at the end of yesterday's show. It's from Brian, and he wanted to know, Pastor, and what do you think is going to happen to the church if the Democrats win the election? Uh, Brian, I answered really quickly yesterday, but you know, I've been thinking about your question yesterday. And I mean nothing personal by this, Brian. I don't know you. But uh, I I kept seeing Jesus with his disciples, sort of um, astonished by some of the things he would ask. And Jesus would say to them, have I been with you for such a long time and you still don't know? Basically what he's saying is what happened to your faith. And the the reason I wanted to revisit this question, Brian, is because if you think the future of the church is dependent upon who's in the White House or what political party's in control, then I would ask you, oh, ye of little faith, what makes you think this based on all the things that God has said? I was speaking with Paula today about some things, and um, one of the things that we talked about briefly was the politicization, politicization of the church. And 
uh, how some churches, you know, make it feel like if you're not a Republican, if you're not voting for Trump, then you, you're not really saved, that kind of thing. And, and I don't know where we've got that. You look at people's Facebook feeds or, or you look at some of the online stuff from blogs and things and you just wonder, do these people not understand that our kingdom is not of this world and our kingdom already has a king? So, Brian, I wanted to take this opportunity to ask you to really examine your heart. When Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, he meant it. When Paul wrote, if God is for us, who can be against us? He meant it. And sometimes what we really have to understand is that this kind of controversy is all the Lord's doing. And as Christians, we decide whether we play by the rules of the kingdom of this world or do we set our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's so important that we get this. It's so critical to understand if we believe in Jesus, if we trust him, if we believe his promises, then it doesn't matter who's in the White House. And today, again, Paul and I were talking about this. But I'm just thinking, when I was out on my time walking and praying with the Lord this morning, uh, I felt like the Lord, when I was praying for our government and our governors, and by that I mean the, for everybody from the president on down to, to local um, elected officials, I was saying, Lord, our, our world is out of control. And it was almost, and you never know if this is the Lord speaking to your heart or if it's just something that you're thinking of, but but my, my initial thought was, Jesus was telling me, this is the government that we deserve. We live in a country that has been blessed by God. From the very beginning, blessed by God. We, we live in a country that had a mission from God. God was going to raise this country, established 240-ish years ago, And God was going to use this country to be Israel's protector, Israel's advancer in the world. And because that was our mission long before Israel would ever return to their homeland, God blessed us. We became powerful. We became rich. At least outwardly, we honored God. Now, remember, it doesn't mean that we were a Christian nation because most people, no matter the nation, aren't going to be saved. But it was like the Lord was saying, this is the government you deserve. You wanted to be independent from me. I gave you what you wanted. This is the fruit. And as New Testament believers, and Brian, this isn't just for you. This is for everybody. We can understand that this is exactly what was predicted to happen in the very last days before Jesus returns for his church. And the world is out of order. It doesn't mean God's still not going to move. And as I have said often in this program, my prayer daily is that the Lord would, would have one more huge move of his spirit in this country before Jesus returns for his church. But if that's not to be, and I think as believers we need to understand that all of this strife, all of this fear, creates an opportunity for us to be witnesses for Jesus in this world where people are so lost, so afraid. And if we'll simply follow Jesus, if we'll share Jesus with the lost, who knows, we might be the impetus for that revival that we've all been praying for. So for Brian and for everybody, as it relates to the church, it doesn't at all matter who is in the White House. Now, we have our preferences, and voting is our right and privilege. But the truth of the matter is, it's not like God's going to wake up on the day after the election in November and say, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? He, he's not going to do that. So we shouldn't be doing it either. So, Brian, I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one from Nacho. 
He says, number 20, in Numbers 21, there's a mention of a book in verse 14 called The Book of the Wars of the Lord. Does that book still exist? Not show the, the, the book obviously doesn't exist. Now, throughout Scripture, there is uh, a books of the Chronicles of the Kings. That's not meaning First and Second Chronicles, but where the kings would have their, their secretaries, uh, their scribes, who would chronicle the events of their reign. And so those books are referred to. There's non-canonical books referred to even by the Apostle Paul. So this isn't giving validation to an extra-biblical book like we needed. It's simply saying this was a part of the culture that, um, that we lived in. Now, the book of the wars of the Lord is referred to again in Numbers 21, but the book is lost to us. And the only information we have about this book is in this one verse, Numbers 21, verse 14. And it's mentioned in such a way that would indicate it was somewhat well-known at the time, at least to the people of Israel. And again, these lost books are not at all uncommon. So, um, good question, great curiosity, but there are a whole bunch of books mentioned that so much time has passed that we just don't have any idea. By the way, that so many of those books are now lost to us. We have no way to track them down historically. Well, it gives great credibility to the way God has preserved the the manuscripts and the pieces of manuscripts that we have in the Bible. Because the Bible, of course, is even older. And at least part of it is. And, um, and God has preserved it. He's preserved what we need. We don't have to worry about the other things. So good question. Thanks very, very much. 340-9585. Here is a question from Manuel. He says, how should I defend the Trinity when speaking with the Jehovah's Witness? Manuel, I don't think you should defend the Trinity. I think you just declare it. I think the biggest approach, the best approach with um, either Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses is to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his own disciples that. Everybody was talking about, well, who do they say? Well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say that Jesus would look at his disciples, point a finger and say, well, who do you say I am? And that's the approach I always take, especially with the Jehovah's Witness. Now, you find out right away if they're even slightly interested in what's true. If they want to listen, then you share. But the idea is focusing on the person of Jesus Christ. What makes Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses a cult is they change the nature and the character of our our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They use the same words, but he's not God the Creator. He's either Michael the Archangel for the JWs or the spirit brother of Lucifer, the good brother of Lucifer. That's the Mormons. And so I, I think what you do is you simply focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And when you're talking to Jehovah's Witness, although their Bible has some purposeful inaccuracies, their Bible still calls all three members of the Godhead God. The Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God. And if they want the information, it's there for them. So, Manuel, don't defend, just declare. And let the Holy Spirit do the work. Or let them quench the work the Spirit wants to do. Here is from Matty. I hope I got that right. Um, if God has one person for you to be married to, how do you know which one it is? Um, Matty, I, I don't believe personally that God has one person for us to marry to. It's not like, like God's got a puzzle on earth and he's really working hard to put it together. Um, if, in fact, God has one person, a soulmate, um, it's because he knows who it is you're going to eventually marry. So, Matty, I wouldn't be too picky. The truth is we can fall in love with lots of different people. Given the right circumstances and exposure, we can fall in love with all kinds of people. But the one person God has for you is the one he knows you're going to marry. Now, Maddie, I'm not talking to you now, but to everybody uh, in general. If you're married, that's your soulmate. Whoever it is you're married to, you may think, well, I got the wrong guy, or uh, Paula for all those years was stuck with Ron the jerk. 
Um, but, but God is the one who told her this is the one for life. Why? Because he knew. He knew that we would spend the next 50 years plus together. And so it's not a matter of running into by circumstance that one person. It's honoring God in a relationship. And many, if you fall in love with somebody and that person is a believer, if that person treats you with dignity and respect, if that person is somebody that you're attracted to, there's a really good chance that you've just bumped into the one that God has for you. And yeah, he knew about it, but, but we need to sort of demystify this idea of the one person God has. That's sort of overwhelming, and I don't think that's the case. So, Maddie, thank you for the question. Here is a question from Yoli. Um, Jesus died for all of our sins, so does that mean we don't need to keep repenting of sin now? Um, Yoli, you're right in that Jesus died for our sins, past, present, and future. Um, there's great, great comfort in that. But it still means that when we sin, we need to repent. You see, here's what happens. The dynamic is this. we got a great relationship with God, and then we willfully choose to sin, and that relationship, that fellowship is broken. You know, I don't know, Yoli, if you've ever been angry at your husband um, and, and you know, you went to bed angry and didn't talk to him. Well, that's sort of what it's like when we sin against God. Not that he's angry, he just wants us to come back, but, but we can't talk to him, we can't communicate with him. It's like the silent treatment because our means of access to God has been broken by sin. So when we repent, 1 John 1, 9, and this is all about fellowship with God and fellowship with unbelievers in context. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So that confession is repentance. It's agreeing with God that what I did was wrong. God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And then he says, yes, and instantly your fellowship with God is restored. Paul often says, my favorite thing about God is his forgiveness. And I love the fact that she's so grateful to be forgiven. She's grateful for second chances. The reality is that every one of us as believers, we ought to be quick to repent. The Apostle Paul says in writing to the Corinthians that we're to examine our hearts daily to see whether we're in the faith. And when the Lord shines a light on sin in our heart, we have an advocate with the Father, the man Christ Jesus. And instantly, by repenting, access is granted, and then we have full access not only to forgiveness, but to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, I think the most difficult thing about people who don't repent, who don't keep short accounts with the Lord, is that they're walking around with no power available to him at all. You know, we understand that in this cell phone world that we live in. I see people all the time. Now, my cell phone never gets below like 97 or something, but we see people all the time worried about where they're going to plug in their phones, they got to charge their phones. I go to the gym and see people, they leave their phone sitting on a bathroom sink plugged in so it can be charged. Somebody could steal the phone. They don't care about that. But I'm just out of juice. Well, a lot of Christians are out of juice. Have the appearance of godliness but deny the power thereof. And repenting is that instant charge. And all we have to do is say, God, I'm sorry. Now, last thought on this, Yoli, there are people that teach that we don't need to repent. Hyper-grace teaching, it's it's all oh, grace covers everything and all of our sins are forgiven so we don't need to. Those are people walking around in the flesh. Not only is their doctrine horrible, but they're walking around in the flesh and they have no connection to God. Maybe they're saved still. I'm not suggesting that they're not. That's between them and God. But what value is there to have all this power available to us every single day and not have any access to it because of sin? 
So yes, we need to keep repenting of our sins. We need to do it daily, even when you aren't, excuse me, excuse me, even when we feel like maybe I didn't sin yesterday, maybe everything was okay yesterday, we need to let the Lord examine our heart. And the best way to do that, of course, is being in the Word. By far, the best way to do that is being in the Word. Thank you, Yoli. 340-9585. Phones are quiet today. We love your live calls and questions. Manny asks, will you talk about the difference between giving and tithing, please? Um, Yeah, Manny, tithing is established by the law. The word means a tenth. And so when you see people giving a tenth or 10%, they are tithing. Now, um, as I've said in response to the similar questions many, many times, a tithing is not a New Testament requirement. Under the law, it was required. But we're not under the law. We're under grace. So giving a tenth is not required at all. And um, and, I want you to get this because when you give out of obligation or under compulsion, there's really no reward for it. Giving as opposed to tithing is completely different. Giving is an act of the will. Giving is an act of, of a heart that's charitable toward God, a generous heart toward God. Giving is um, an act of worship by the believer who understands that God gave everything for us. I always say that God emptied the bank of heaven to save me. So how would I ever justify giving him 10%? And so that's the difference between giving and tithing. Tithing isn't something that we're required to do. I know there are a lot of pastors out there that still teach that tithing is. I think... Jesus would say to them, O ye of little faith, don't you think I'm able to move on the hearts of my people? Giving, on the other hand, is every Christian's obligation. Now, the question, many, is what should we give? People say, well, if it's not a tenth, how much? The Apostle Paul says to the church at Rome that in view of everything that God's done, we've got to give him everything. Don't worry, because God's going to let you keep most of the money that he's blessed you with. But we need to understand that it belongs to him. And if you offer to him, say, Lord, this is all yours. I mean, as opposed to a tithe, if I say, okay, God, here's a a, a dollar, 90 cents for me, 10 cents for you. Can you imagine God and him saying, wow, I couldn't live without that 10 cent. What we need to do is say, Lord, it's all yours. You know my needs, you know our bills, you know everything, but Lord, how much of your money do you want me to give to your church? And many, that's where giving should go. It should go to the church. Now, there are times where God will will ask you to go over and above with his money and, and, and maybe be generous with other ministries or other people. But the model established under the law is that um, the tithes went to the temple, to the synagogues, to the treasury. And that much hasn't changed. So we should give and be generous about it. And if all we would say is, Lord, how much do you want me to give? I promise you, spend some time in prayer, spend some time in the Word, and He will tell you what to give. I've always said, Manny, that if people give the same amount, because they make the same amount, they give the same amount every week, they're not really seeking the Lord. They're just doing it sort of automatically. And it's always a, 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 a kind of a scary thing when I see that. Because I want people really committed to asking God what He wants us to do with His money. And when you are a generous man or a generous woman, Believe me, you're not more generous than God and you cannot give him. It's not a give-to-get scam like prosperity teachers teach. It's just a biblical principle. You reap what you sow. If I understand that everything belongs to the Lord, 
and I'm asking him, what do you want me to do? I don't worry about, well, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to do this or how am I going to do that? I just imagine the smile on his face and I know that God will take care of all my needs. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things, Jesus said, will be added unto you. So many, the difference is an obligation or love. That's the real difference between giving and tithing. Thanks for the question. It was a good one. Hey, oops, we're at the end of the first half of the program. We'd love your live calls and questions in our final 30 minutes today. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. That was a very quick two minutes. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Remember, you're more interesting than I am, so we'd love your calls. Here's a question from Wendy. Pastor Ron, how can I explain that the Bible is not sexist when discussing the passages that seem to, that seem to indicate that women are second-class citizens in the kingdom? Wendy, first, there are no passages in Scripture that even seem to indicate that women are second-class citizens in the kingdom. This is one of the reasons why what's going on in our country right now, where, where our history is being stripped away from us, if people would do just a little bit of study and understand what Jesus did for women, Jesus in the ancient world was the only one who ever gave women equal standing, completely equal standing. There is no slave, there is no free, there is no Jew, Gentile, male or female. He elevated women to a status that they couldn't imagine before. And Jesus did all of that. So I understand your question. Um, we say a woman can't be a pastor, or we discuss complementarianism, that the woman is the complement to the husband. I say that in the sense that women can't do what they're called by God to do without the husband, and men can't do what they're called to do by the Lord without the wife. That's the, 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 the complementary ministry, the complementary gifts. We take such a narrow view. Well, because I can't have this, I want that. Well, that's just flesh. So I would explain that. Explain God gives people the same standing, but he gives different roles. And the Bible unapologetically is patriarchal. By that I mean the picture of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, uh, all referred to in, in, in masculine pronouns. It's very important to God that we understand He's our Father, not our Mother, but that He's our Father. And um, to immediately jump to sexism because I'm a woman and I want to be a pastor is to miss the point. And we need to study. When Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, he says, um, I, I do not allow women to speak in church. That was a church that was out of control. And the women exercising their newfound freedom in Christ... They were shouting in the church at their husbands in the Oriental culture. They'd sit on opposite sides of the room or, or, or men in the front and women in the back, depending on where it was. You can understand the, the, the shouting contest. And Paul's simply saying, no, be quiet. You've got a question, ask your husband at home. But he also tells the church at Corinth that, that women can not only speak, they can pray, they can prophesy. So he's not diminishing them in any form or, or, or capacity. He's simply saying, here is the role. Now, here's what we need to understand, Wendy. The only thing God said a woman cannot do in his church is be a pastor. That's the only thing. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. That's as clear as it can be. We try to explain it away, and it just doesn't work. That's not relegating them to second-class citizenship. That's just saying everything in the church is yours except this one thing. Now, if you go all the way back to the garden, when God told Adam and Eve, every tree in the garden is yours to eat. Every tree, enjoy it. Just one tree. And why is there something about our flesh that wants the one thing that God says we can't have? Well, that's what's happened with women as pastors. We've decided, no, I'm called, I'm gifted, I'm a great Bible teacher. I've said on this program many, many, many times that we've got many gifted women Bible teachers. Many, many, many. And the only thing they can't do is stand up in front of the church and have a pastoral position, a position of authority over men. It doesn't mean they don't get to exercise their gift. It doesn't mean that we don't benefit from their gift. But um, there's no other place. You know, I think the other place, Wendy, I want to talk about is the home. You know, God has asked us as believers, we're not our own, we're bought with a price. It means we have no rights. Male or female, we have no rights. And he said to women, there are two places that are mine. The church is mine, Jesus is the head of the church, and the Christian home is mine. And so women are told to submit to their own husbands, not to other men. It doesn't have anything to do with work. It doesn't have anything to do with running for political office. God says there's two places that I own. I own the Christian home and I own the church. And I would explain to them that that's not depriving women of any opportunities at all. It's simply saying, in those areas that God owns. We've got to remember that we are owned by Jesus. He created us. Created us, not like Adam and Eve. He created us through the process of creation. But he also bought us back out of our sin. It's like he doubly owns us. And he says, okay, for everything I've done, here's what I ask. And for ladies, it's just... Let the husband rule my home and let men be the authority figures in the church. Our first response, Wendy, is usually, well, why? God says, because you call me Lord. This is the model that I created. So, Wendy, I would explain it that way. And I would ask people to, and I have asked people, and they never take me up on this, uh, I ask him to exegete the passages about submission for women. What does this say? What does it mean? And what does it mean for us? And nobody will ever do it because they just want to completely dismiss it because they don't like it. problem is we can't tear pages out of our Bible. So thank you. Here is our caller, Ronnie, on line one from San Antonio. Ronnie, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? Oh, Ronnie, I'm doing good. How are you? I uh, got a headache, but I have been reading ahead in Second Timothy. And in Chapter 3, there's two verses that you're real. I don't know if they're bothering me or speaking to me or what, but one is having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof and ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge. Scary, huh? Sure. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> if you could explain those ones, uh, I'll get off the phone and hear the answer online. Okay. Thank you, Ronnie. God bless you. Um, let, let me let me assure you that that the Holy Spirit's not putting you in the position of having a form of godliness, but denying the power. You know, sometimes things happen in our lives, and we get a little bit afraid. Um, we have those moments of doubt, and it's it's not God saying, well, I just can't believe you would doubt me in this. It's not that at all. Um, in context, what Paul is talking about in, in verse 5 uh, is um, the people he describes in the first four verses. So he's talking about unbelievers. This isn't something the Holy Spirit would ever say to you. And, and truthfully, if you look at this list of people, and this is a perfect description, Ronnie, of where we are 
in the time that we live in in these last days. Um, he says, mark this, there will be perilous times. I like that word because it's, it's, it's more ominous than terrible times. Uh, and he describes people be lovers of themselves. We're, we're, we're living in that world, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. And that's better translation of the King James, without natural affection. Unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure than rather, rather than lovers of God. And what's important there is, I mean, that, that any of us could look at our Facebook feeds, if you have Facebook, and you can see all of those things being demonstrated. Some of them by people who claim to be Christians. Now, what Paul is saying to Timothy is, we're in the last days, Timothy, and you're going to see all of these kinds of lives. Now, this has been ramping up for nearly 2,000 years, Ronnie, and... and um, Obviously, we're closer to the return of the Lord than they were in Timothy's time when Paul wrote this. But when he says, having a form of godliness but denying its power, these are people that claim a higher power. They're people that are living these ungodly lives. Some of them will claim to know Jesus. Uh, Paul's saying, look, they have a form of spirituality, a form of godliness, but there's no power in their lives. And the reason there's no power is because they don't know Jesus. They know about him, but they don't know him. A good example of this in our church culture, Ronnie, is, is um, churches that are gay-affirming. Well, we just love everybody, and we know God is a God of love, so you can come and you can sin. Well, you can walk in, and they sing worship songs. You can walk in, and the pastor's got a Bible. And you can look around and say, yeah, there's a form of godliness, but where's the power? So this doesn't describe you at all, Ronnie. This describes the people that are are um, receiving Paul's attention in the first four verses. So having a form of godliness, but deny the power, or die, denying the power therein. Um, and by the way, um, there are people like that in every church. And we're told to have nothing to do with them. So I hope that helps, Ronnie. Thank you very, very much. God bless you, and I'll be praying for your headaches. 340-9585. Here is a question from Thomas from our email inbox. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Thank you and everyone who prayed for me. After two weeks, my vertigo is gone, and I get to go back to work tomorrow morning. You know, Thomas, when you saw when I saw you the other day, now, I know Thomas, obviously, and love him very much. Um, uh, he brought me um, my favorite dessert, banana pudding, uh, the other day. And he said, somebody called, and I said that Paula got greens, but I didn't get any banana pudding. And and uh, that that woman also brought me some banana pudding. But um, uh, I was so excited over your pudding that I forgot to ask you how the vertigo was going. So thank you for letting me know that you're doing well. I'm really, really thrilled for you. He says, my question today is about the Holocaust. The Jewish people have always been in Satan's crosshairs. And this was one of many significant, invent, uh, significant events in their history. Was the Holocaust prophesied about specifically or generally in the Bible. Um, um, Thomas, only generally. There's no specific prophecy about the six million lives, Jewish lives that would be lost at the hands of Hitler and his soldiers. Um, it was prophesied generally by Jesus. It was prophesied generally as we talk about the last days. Uh, the Jewish people would always be, have always been the most persecuted people on the face of the earth. Far, far, far greater persecution than anyone else. Satan absolutely hates them, and those that Satan controls also hate them. And so uh, it was only prophesied about generally. There have been other times. Actually, times in the Bible, Esther, the book of Esther, when Israel came even closer to being completely extinct. And every time you see anti-Semitism rear its ugly head, Thomas, that is an enemy 
who is pulling the strings and pushing the hearts of men. So um, just generally, it was a perfect example, and I don't want to be misunderstood here. It's a perfect example of Romans 8.28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Well, we know the nation of Israel is the apple of God's eye. He loves them in the absence of their love for him. We also know that God took that horrible, horrible time of human history when evil reigned as never before, probably. I mean, when I say that, obviously we have a limited review of history. But he took that time and he created an environment where Israel would be allowed by the world to to reoccupy their homeland after nearly 1,900 years separated from it. God used the Holocaust and the shame of the Holocaust to move the hearts of leaders to come to that place in 1948 when under the direction of David Ben-Gurion, Israel could come back in, be regathered to their homeland. And that really sort of turned the clock up, the prophetic clock. We've been counting down ever since that 1948 date. And Jesus is going to come back, and he owns Israel. So hope that helps, Thomas. Great question. I'm really thrilled to hear about your vertigo. I was asking Paula today, have you got any word from Thomas about the vertigo? Here is a question from Oliver. He said, since God gives us free will, I don't think it's fair for him to sentence us to hell for exercising our free will. Well, Oliver, God never sends people to hell for exercising free will. He sends people to hell for having unforgiven sin. We always need to be really fundamental about this. When somebody has sin that's not covered, they're not going to go to heaven. We're, we're all eternal. We're all going to live somewhere forever. We have to choose in this life whether we're going to live forever with God. We call that heaven. Or forever separated from God. We call that hell. And when you make a choice to live independent from God, Oliver, all God does is honor that choice. When you die, he honors the choice. You wanted to be independent from me, you will be independent from me forever and ever. So all he's doing is living with the choice you make. Now it breaks his heart. Isaiah 28 talks about judgment being something strange to God. And yet the truth is, you made the choice. And that means because of sin, you will not be able to enter into the place where the Bible says... Of it, of heaven, no impure person will ever enter. No pain, no evil, no wickedness, no darkness. And the only way we can do that is to be washed by the blood of Jesus. So, Oliver, it's pretty straightforward. Um, Your your question, I'm fairly confident, isn't really an honest one. God gives you a choice to make. But that choice to live with him or live separate from him And if you die having chosen to live separate from God, then that's the choice he's going to honor for the rest of eternity. I almost said for the rest of your life, but it's far worse than that. It's the rest of eternity. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Ron. He said, um, many of our founding fathers were deists, but I want to know, were they Christians? Um, Ron, God always has his people. So some of them were Christians. But far, far and away, more of them were deists than, than born-again Christians. And they had a, a concept of God. Ronnie's question about having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof it speaks specifically about the plight of those who are called deists. You know, they believe in a God. But they don't believe that God is involved in their life or in the day-to-day workings of things here on earth. It's just like he's just kind of out there and we know and we're grateful to him and we bless him. Um, But they don't believe that God is interested in them. And by definition, those are men and or women who are not born again. Thus, they're going to hell for eternity. So you're right. Many of our founding fathers were deists. 
um, if they were deists, they are not Christians. You know, I say this a lot, Ron, but we, we all have an instinctive knowledge of God. Romans 1 talks about it at length. We all know there's something out there. Well, Jesus became a man so that that which is out there could be in us. And we're all without excuse for not knowing him. So nobody gets brownie points for believing in a God, believing in a higher power. Jesus said, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. It's that simple. You've got to believe in Jesus Christ. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, Jack, interesting question. He says, Pastor Ryan, what way is the gospel the power of God unto salvation as Romans 1 says? Um, Jack, this is, a, it's, it's, it's hard to explain, but in, in a way that most people, even most Christians don't understand, there's a supernatural power of God in his word. In his word. The gospel, of course, the good news is Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead ascended to the right hand of the Father with the promise that he's coming back again for his church. And if we have that gospel, if we share that gospel, by the way, if we share it, then we're experiencing that power and we can spread it around to others. But I think what he's saying there is that the gospel just needs to be declared. We want to argue about it. We want to debate it. We want to convince people of some of the finer points. Question then earlier about convincing Jehovah's Witnesses about the Trinity. The gospel is like a caged lion. It just needs to be let loose. And that's the power of God unto salvation. So, Jack, we share the gospel. The parable of the sower, we scatter seed, the word of God. And the Holy Spirit then waters it. And whenever possible, the, the, the seed that we've sown becomes life-giving. I love that concept. It, it's just we tell people about Jesus, they may shush, shush off and not care at all about hearing. But think about this. When we leave, we've done our job. The Holy Spirit's not going to let that person alone. And he'll take that seed that was planted, he'll water it and it will start to take root in the human heart and then it grows and it does so on its own, it's not our fine presentation or anything else it's simply the power of God in the gospel, one of the things that we've lost sight of in our church culture, especially with all the things going on in the world Jack is that that the word of God is supernatural We try to understand it naturally. But it's not. It's supernatural. I tell people all the time, married couples, read the Word together. Just read it. God will supernaturally knit your hearts together. And so few people really believe me, but I'm promising you that there's power in His Word. And God the Holy Spirit will keep chasing people away. Thanks, Jack. Good question. Here, this will be our last question for today. I've got three minutes. Let me see which one I can do here. Well, let me do Ben's question. He says, Pastor Ron, as you read your Bible, is there only one meaning or can there be multiple meanings of a text? Um, ben, there's only one meaning. And, and the, thing, the, the thing we have to start with when we're studying our Bibles is what did the author intend to say? And we can discern that by knowing who the audience was. But, but the most important thing isn't what it says to me. What did the author intend to say? And so every passage has one meaning. Now, we also know, and I hope not to confuse you with this, but we know the Bible describes itself as living and active. So that means there'll be different applications of those passages. It means one thing. We need to understand the meaning. But the beauty about the Word of God and walking with Jesus is that He will bring something to life. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, Ben, of opening your Bible 
and this is going to sound weird, but it's the only way I can explain it. It's like I'm reading my, my Bible, and it's almost like, it's not goosebumps, it's not something that simple to explain, but it's almost like there's an alarm clock in my heart. And I know I'm getting close. I, I just I just experience this this sensation, this not physically as much as spiritually, but it's almost like God is saying, "Okay, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention." Boom! There it is. And and He's going to answer a question I've been asking, or He's going to show me something, um, give me some insight on something that I've been been longing for. Or maybe just kind of share something with me that I needed to know that I didn't know I needed to know. So the Bible is living, it's active, sharper than a double-edged sword, it divides between spirit and soul. So read the text for what it says and what it means, and then let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart directly about the text. Now, one thing, Ben, I'm running out of time here, I want to say is you can't take a, a, a text completely out of context and and then say, well, well, God spoke to me about this when you have no understanding of the text. He will speak through his word, rightly divided, and he will share with you over and over and over and over. So just read your Bible. Maybe you get to that place like I do where God's going to say something, and he's going to say something, and when you get it, it's such a joy. Hey, Ben, thanks. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Um... I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Well,